Hello, and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Laura Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is January 21st, 2022, and I am delighted to be here with my friend and colleague, Amjad Iraqi. Amjad is an editor and writer at 972 Magazine and a policy analyst at Ashabaka, the Palestine Poli- Palestinian Policy Network, uh, both of which are partners and supported by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. We're very proud of that. In addition to Amjad's unique brilliance as a person and analyst, we are very proud to have worked with and known Amjad for years and to we look to him for insights on a regular basis. Speaking of insights, uh, first of all, Amjad, welcome. Thanks so much, Laura, for having me. Um, so speaking of insights, I want to first just introduce this podcast today with some background, because a lot of our podcasts are about one very specific narrow issue. That's not what we're doing today. Today is more of a let's understand what in the world is happening, because there's a lot happening. It's been very tumultuous um, in Palestine uh, over the past. Well, it's always tumultuous. It's particularly the past few weeks. So I want to review a couple of things that have just happened in the past recent days. So we had the um, the extremely high profile eviction of the Salahia family uh, from Sheikh Jarrah and the demolition of their home after a dramatic postponement. This was this week that was due to the, the, the resistance of the family with the support of activists. And that happened at three in the morning in the cold and rain and all of that. Um, so that's one. Two, we have the ongoing protests and arrests that are happening in the Negev or the Nakab in Arabic, where Bedouin, these are Bedouin citizens of Israel, are acting to defy Israeli efforts to effectively use tree planting to dispossess them of lands that they have been on for generations. We also have ongoing settler violence throughout the West Bank, particularly around the former settlement, the site of a former settlement called Homesh, and where settlers have established a yeshiva and the South Hebron Hills. And I would note that I saw a video this morning posted by Jacob Magid from Times of Israel of settlers in the West Bank, mass settlers beating Israeli activists who are there in solidarity with Palestinians and burning their car, all of this on video. Um, in the South Hebron Hills, we saw one of the largest gatherings, popular gatherings in a long time for the funeral of a Palestinian elder, uh, Hajj Suleiman Hathadin, who was a longtime and revered activist who was gravely injured while protesting um, Israeli authorities coming in to effectively take the Palestinians' ability to move freely by taking their cars. And he was run over and the people who ran him over, which was an idea vehicle, then left the scene and there was no effort to give any medical aid or call for help. Um, and then we had also the death of an 80 something year old um, Palestinian Israeli dual national in the West Bank after an interaction with the IDF. We have the ongoing harassment here in the US of Palestinian solidarity students and activists, that's Europe and the US. We have the backdrop of that, the targeting of Palestinian NGOs that has continued in Europe, uh, by particularly in Europe, but with the funding cut off. And then uh, we have front page news yesterday um, about after generations of gaslighting Palestinians and saying there were no massacres, we now have um, Israelis who are in their 90s admitting that in 48, there actually was a massacre. It's one specific massacre. It's one specific case of reality catching up. So that's a lot of introduction. Um, Amjad, how would you describe this moment? sort of in general, what all of this is happening. Talk, talk to us about what this moment means in the arc of uh, Palestinian history and, and, and Palestinian solidarity and resistance to Israeli policies. 
The most succinct way that I can describe all the details you just laid out is that this is really a week in the life of the so-called status quo. So, you know, as you know very well, Lara, a lot of people, when they talk about Israel-Palestine, it's always this concept that there is a status quo on the ground and about maintaining the status quo, uh, even like the policy of uh, entrenching the occupation as a matter of status quo. And people often assume that this is uh, something like freezing the facts on the ground, that everything just kind of frozen in place, and that's where we're at, and that it's, that's what uh, counts as stability. All the things you just described is the real status quo. It's one in which uh, the power dynamics are the same, in which there is this occupying power, this colonial force that is actually entrenching its power, it's entrenching its supremacy, and essentially gearing all, um, all the structures at play to benefit the Israeli state, the Israeli society, essentially to bring the state of Israel triumph and victory in what are really its wildest dreams. Um, and I've been debating with this with a lot of journalists, like over the past few months, we feel like under the Bennett Lapid government, which, you know, you know which came in, uh, which was sworn in June, we got, we had this sense, like, were, were things escalating? Were things more or less the same? And in many respects, we feel like it's actually escalating. Like the new government is not just maintaining uh, you know, the quote unquote status quo of the 12 years that Benjamin Netanyahu was kind of, you know, prominently known as Mr. Status Quo. Uh, here you have a situation where the Bennett Lapid government is pushing on a lot of fronts on very sensitive matters in Israel Palestine from settlement growth, from uh, areas like Sheikh Shabrah in Jerusalem, like the attack on NGOs, really uh, towing, going beyond the lines of all these fronts and finding that there's absolutely no consequences. And because of that, the Bennett Lapid government is feeling even more emboldened, even more empowered than the Netanyahu governments ever did. And this is really what we're seeing on the ground. And just this past week, like the extent of that violence, the extent uh, to which the state has really uh, pushed so many boundaries of, uh, you know, uh, of any concept of stability, of any concept of, uh, you know, of shrinking the conflict. Like this is what it is. This is the reality of it. This is the very human cost of it. And this is merely entrenching Israel's uh, entire regime of apartheid between the river and the sea. So I, I, I want to dig into that a little bit more. And I actually am going to go to one of your tweets um, from earlier this week after the eviction and demolition from Sheikh Jarrah. And you, you tweeted about your words, cruelty is baked into Israeli apartheid. And then you went on, you said, cruelty is, in, after describing what happened in Sheikh Shah, you said, cruelty is needed, quote, to terrify, demoralize, and incapa incapacitate Palestinians. The state needs us to feel this powerlessness, to feel trapped by the sense of failure, to rob us not just of the will to resist, but of the will to live. It needs our total submission or our complete erasure. Um, I want you to talk about that. I also, it's striking to me when I read that, I remember seeing that on Twitter and I was thinking that language doesn't look all that different from the language I see from the Israel Victory Project, which is an overt movement in Israel linked to a movement in the US, the Middle East Forum, which essentially calls for the utter defeat and demoralization of Palestinians as the path to peace. It was just really striking the, the, the parallels in the language. But can you talk more about that, the cruelty, but also you go on to talk about the rage and resolve of Palestinians. And here, I also wanna say something about on Twitter, we saw some of that rage in a, um, a tweet from Mohammed al-Kurd, who's obviously from Sheikh Jarrah, tweeting about this, and, and which was immediately attacked 
by the head of the Anti-Defamation League as anti-Semitism. This, this young man from Sheikh Jarrah tweeting out his rage at seeing this happening to his neighbors in Sheikh Jarrah. It was, it was quite striking. So do you want to just comment on all of that? Yeah, I'll do my best. Um, I mean, so I'm sure a lot of people probably heard Palestinians talk about uh, when they describe a lot of Israeli policies, they say that cruelty is the point. Uh, and for a lot of people, you know, this used to be dismissed as a kind of like, you know, this is just a, sort of a demonizing and going too far in emotional language. But what needs to be grasped that cruelty is a strategy. It's a method. It's very calculated. It's very deliberate. Um, cruelty is not, you know, it's meant to have these ripple effects. You know, it is, you know, there are those who do it for sadistic reasons and there are states that want to do it for sadistic reasons. But here as well, there's a complete strategy. And I can give you like a, just a personal example. Like I remember waking up Wednesday morning, um, you know, this was two days after this major standoff um, uh, in Sheikh Jarrah where the family literally got up onto the roof of their houses, with gas canisters threatening to blow up uh, the house and to destroy everything. Um, and the police backed off and they demolished other structures in the area, but they agreed that, all right, let's not, let's not cross this line. And so what is, there was this kind of flicker of, you know, hope, like they, they managed to do it. They had to go to such extremes to do it, but there was this moment of hope. And then Wednesday morning we wake up and I'm looking at my phone and I'm, and we're seeing the news, we're seeing the videos, we're seeing the images that the home was destroyed. It's turned into rubble. Like all, all most if not all of us were asleep and this family's life was just completely destroyed. And I remember looking over at my wife and she was also seeing it on her phone and we were just speechless for the entire morning. We didn't know what to say. We couldn't even crack a smile. Like, and I was trying to understand this, like, you know, I, like that they would really go to this length and they know that what they did is cruel. It's a win one of the most freezing nights of the year in the middle, you know, of like just, it's even well before dawn. Um, and they know that this is mean, they deal with this is evil. Um, and, in, and I, the only way I could grasp it was that, you know, that the state wants us to see this. All the Palestinians who took a little bit of hope from Monday, who thought that there was this chance to, to hold off these forces, even if uh, for a bit, like it was to really steal that hope from under us. From under us. It was to steal this uh, sense that we could actually accomplish, some, accomplish something versus a state. Um, and I saw, you know, across social media, I talked to a lot of people during that day, and we were all feeling that same speechlessness, all feeling that same helplessness. Now, you know, Palestinians aren't strangers to this kind of violence, we're not strange to these kind of tragedies, man-made uh, tragedies. Um, we live and see it daily, but it's just like the weight of that entire week of all the things that you had spoken about. There was just something about that just really crashed to know that this just happened, you know, in an instant like that. Um, and it really honed in this kind of sense of total abandonment, especially by the international community, which, you know, for decades has constantly proclaimed its investment and made massive investments in places like Sheikh Sarah, literally in the neighborhood that was being targeted, where diplomats even came and showed up. And the most that they could deliver was like a photo shoot. The most that they could deliver was a Twitter statement. The most they could deliver was to a couple of words of support here and there saying that this is not helpful for the peace process or not helpful for peace in any, in any sense. And that was the most that they could do. Now, some of these diplomats are very well-meaning, but in the end, we know that the real power lies in the capitals. 
or even if those diplomats can do something further, they're not going to break the, the boundaries of the diplomatic protocol. And so just knowing that that was the case and seeing the fact that even their presence could not really hold it off for more than two days was really, um, it was a really terrifying thing to know. And it was, again, just this re-emphasis of why cruelty is there to ensure that we don't try this again. It's an attempt. It's a strategy to make sure that we don't try that kind of resistance again. And this now comes on to the other side, whereby, yeah, that, that sense of um, uh, this rage and resolve, you know, we're often uh, told that we shouldn't be allowed to express rage, that anger is often used to kind of, you know, portray us in a, uh, in a terrible way and to demonize us, but we Palestinians have a right to rage. Uh, and even people like Mohammed, who literally is in that neighborhood, his home is under threat of that, of that same demolition. He knows the entire communities in that area, one of many neighborhoods in Jerusalem that are experiencing the same thing. And he has every, every right to be absolutely furious. You might dislike the language, you might dislike the way he's expressing it, you might disagree even politically with what he's feeling, but to know, to live through most of your life knowing that your house could be torn while you're inside and that you're gonna be dragged out at 3.30 in the morning as the family was just on Wednesday, there's no way you're gonna come out of that uh, in one piece. You're not gonna come out of that polite. And so it's important, I think, to also create that space to allow Palestinians at rage. We have, a leg we have legitimacy to be angry. We have legitimacy to call out the state which you know, proclaimed itself to be uh, a place of law, a place of democracy, and Palestinians know better, and diplomats know better, and journalists who are recording this and seeing this on the ground, they know better. Um, and, and sorry, I'm talking for a while on this, but- hey, uh, I, just... Actually, I wanna pick up on that last part, you said you know, the, the state of law and democracy. One of the things that's always striking to me when these things happen, because you and I were talking a little bit before the podcast, I'm always, I'm, I always struggle with the way these issues are covered because it feels like, people take a piece of paper and put a pinprick in it and look through that little tiny pinprick hole and say, let me think about this in isolation, as opposed to just turn on the sheet of paper and see that this is all happening in front of you. It's all connected, it's all together. But using that little like, you know, tiny pinprick, let's just look at this one thing. The Israelis are very deft and always have been at saying, all right, listen, we have, we're, we're a nation of laws. This is legal. Everything we've done is legal. This house was legally torn down. That's the first thing, the rule of law. I've written a lot about rule of law versus rule by law and how they're very different. I don't know if you want to address that, but sort of what is a kind of international gaslighting and gaslighting the Palestinians there? You know, oh, we, we tried, you had, you had recourse. But on top of that, you've got the sort of layers of the Palestinians are so crude, they don't recognize that this is good for them, right? Because Sheikh Jarrah, we're tearing down the house to build a school. Right? What's the problem? This is a school for the Palestinians, notwithstanding the fact that Palestinians have needed school rooms for you know decades. Israel doesn't build them and could build them on land that's available, but here they have to tear down a house. Or in the Negev, what's the problem? We want to plant trees. Who are these horrible, vulgar people who oppose tree planting? Can you talk about the psychology that goes along with that if you're Palestinians living constantly having to deal with this, this almost like rotating set of of, of rationalizations in which you are always on the defensive, always wrong, always portrayed as the, if, if, not, the, if not the attacker, then, then Israel is the good party, you're the bad party, no matter what you do, no matter what is being done 
to you. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Totally. And I would actually add another dimension to this, whereby a lot of um, you know, foreign governments and diplomats actually buy into that, into those nitpicky details. Uh, like I remember when I was, uh, you know, working with the with the human rights group, like the extent to which they would be asking those micro those micro issues, and they'd be like, yeah, exactly. So what about this school? What about this particular master plan? What about this particular law? And Palestinians would respond like, it doesn't matter. These details are meant to kind of confuse and sort of confound the process, which really boils down to one simple thing, and it is about in Jerusalem, for example, it is about the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. It is to get uh, get rid of them. If you don't want to use ethnic cleansing, it is proper expulsion of a community, of an entire society, which the state uh, is very explicit about not wanting and not desiring in Jerusalem. Like you have to boil it down to that. Um, and so the fact that, you know, the Israelis do use these kind of, you know, um, that the Israeli authorities do use this kind of like these complicating aspects and people are buying into it. Uh, that itself adds this weight of Palestinians being like that you're missing the point. Um, and it's infuriating, you know, that, and, you know, seeing as we did, like, just all the different examples that you raised uh, from last week, Lara, of, you know, you have an issue here in South, in South Urban Hills, you have this issue in the Naqab, uh, even Gaza, its own separate thing. And this fragmentation um, is, uh, it, it's, a false it's a false reflection of the facts on the ground. The policy is the same. The underlying motive is the same. You know, I may, you know, I'm also like living in Haifa, for example, and I'm, uh, more privileged than a lot of other Palestinians around the area, but I'm still seeing the exact same processes which are meant to keep me in completely inferior to Jewish citizens. That the state is still allowed to uh, create these laws, uh, for example, which you know seem neutral on face value, but there are laws that in fact ensure that I can't access certain houses that for a long time could dictated uh, that uh, the fact that I couldn't marry someone from the occupied territories. They dictate the fact that. Um, because I'm not Jewish, I am uh, less deserving of rights. Um, and like you said, this is ruled by law. It is that you use these uh, quote unquote legitimate modes of, uh, of power to maintain a regime of racial supremacy, to maintain a regime of apartheid. And it's the same fact with violence that, you know, the fact that the military here, for example, is seen as somehow more legitimate uh, or that if they do practice violence or the police practice uh, forms of uh, violence, that it is okay for them to do so, or it's more right for them to do so than it is for Palestinians, for example, to resist in whatever form, to be angry in whatever form. There's this double standard that's created that like, oh, so as long as you put a formal packaging around it, then it has the veneer of legitimacy of, um, you know, of state, um, uh, of state morality of some kind. Um, and it's, you know, and Palestinians are trying to completely usurp that. We're saying, no, the state itself, its very essence is meant to be an ideology which we would not accept in any other place. And there's absolutely no reason why we should be confused by these details and to come back down to the essential point of Israeli apartheid. So I have a, I, something I want to ask you about. It isn't directly related to this, but I'm actually, I'm curious if there was news this week, a separate line of news which is that it became public that the Israeli uh, security authorities have been using um, surveillance um, technologies that they have used for years against Israel, uh, Palestinians, and everyone's always known that and never cared that actually they're using them against Israelis too. And that was a big bit of news in the Israeli press. And then it got even a bigger piece of news because it came out 
that in the same way that they were using those technologies to try to compromise Palestinians and, and get them to, to do things um, by finding really what is a problem, damaging things that would cause people pain, particularly by particularly exploiting people who are closeted LGBTQ, um, that they are doing the same thing targeting Israeli activists. I don't know if you want to have any comment on, on how the extent to which the line in an Isra the Israeli government between the policies it uses towards Palestinians for years and no one's cared about, how those um, leach into its broader policies against all of its own people. It, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot for years that this week sort of like triggered it again as like this is something to, to pay more attention to. It is important. Uh, and here it actually uh, suggests a bit of a reframing. So I know a lot of people, for example, you know, there's this line about the idea that the occupation creeps into sort of Israel proper, that 1967 is now going into 1948. There's a stage before that, uh, the, that 19, it began with 1948 to 1967, and in many ways it's sort of, uh, let's say, becoming more salient again in 1948. So what do I mean? Uh, so for example, uh, from 1948 to 1966, uh, Palestinian citizens of the state who have Israeli citizenship, Israeli passports, uh, and are on the quote-unquote Israel proper side of the border. So they were placed under military rule. Uh, so basically for almost 20 years, Israel had these, you know, had these two decades to experiment with forms of military occupation. It was about curfews, it was about military laws. How do you use uh, you know, both civil and military laws to confiscate land? It had these 20 years of practice to develop and hone these skills. And that included the issue, uh, aspects of massive surveillance of Palestinian citizens. Uh, how do you kind of control them politically? How can you include them in the political system with the right to vote and still maintain their second class citizenship? So from that experience, that was then projected, multiplied, uh, you know, and expanded upon with the occupation of 67. So all the tools that we see there are more extreme versions, but I mean, potentially more extreme versions, but they are modeled on what existed inside the state. That's, that's, so, that's so important. I'm, I'm glad you I'm glad you raised that because I think all of us, even if we know it, we forget it. I, I've said for years when people talk about the question of can Israel be a state with a Jewish character, Jewish state in a democracy, my answer has always been nobody knows it's never been tried except for this brief window from 66 through the beginning of the occupation in 67. So really, it's never even experimented with whether it can be both truly democratic and Jewish. Exactly. So. There's literally a space of a couple of months. Um, and this and these aspects. And and then after 67, you know, putting aside the occupied territory. So inside Israel was also an experimental stage whereby you remove these military laws for the most part. Um, and then you start applying civil laws. How do you achieve the same objective using these civil laws? Uh, so Adela, for example, an organization that I worked for for a couple of years, they have discriminatory laws, discriminatory laws database, excuse me, which tracks, you know, some of this legislation, which, as I mentioned before, they look neutral, but they basically achieve the same things. And it wasn't that these aren't just old laws in the past, like they since 2009, for example, they've been proliferating more of these laws to achieve these goals and the kind of you know, the big crown jewel was obviously the Jewish nation state law. So it's not just something of the past. They're finding new civil laws, new quote unquote democratic means to maintain Jewish supremacy. And they're pushing the boundaries even further than they used to, precisely because they have the confidence to do so, to enact segregation, to enact uh, attacks on our political representatives, uh, to say straight out that this land, that Jews have unique right to this, uh, to this land, that we Jewish settlement is... Uh, um, you know, a national value, and this was all manifested before through civil laws. 
And this is why, for example, uh, you have Israeli politicians saying, you know what, let's go ahead and annex Area C because our experience with Palestinian citizens, with Palestinians in 48, uh, is that we could pull it off. We could give them citizenship. We can apply civil law and nothing is gonna happen. This is the logic. There's a pure logic to, to annexation, at least even for huge parts of the West Bank. So they interplay a lot. Um, and so what we're seeing now with aspects of like surveillance, you know, Palestinian citizens grow up most of their lives assuming that they're being surveyed, that it's the Shabak that's either tapping their phones or that there are these collaborators, you know, in their school systems, amongst their families. We grew up with this our entire life and now it's just becoming stronger because the state is far more confident to, um, you know, to, to go through with it. Very sobering. Um, I want to ask you a last set of questions talking to you as a journalist, as a journalist and an editor. Um, and for folks who don't read 972, you should. 972 Magazine Online is off the charts fantastic. Um, the, 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 the level of analysis and coverage of news sets a standard that I think a lot of the journalistic world um, really should be, well, everyone should be following. It's really, really great. Speaking of setting a standard. <laughs> so looking at the media, as a journalist, what do you see that the media is getting right on Israel-Palestine today, to the extent that they are? And what do you see that they're getting wrong? And a, a corollary question, um, you know, what, what should they be paying attention to, right? If you're just giving advice, you can first say what they're getting right or wrong, well done, bad, but what should you be doing? Um, and, and, and what direction do you see the media taking as we are seeing I think more Palestinian voices being able to actually make the case, both as reporters and as analysts, being able to cover this and being able to highlight a Palestinian um, optic on this, whether it is an optic that just says facts matter and these are the facts, or an optic that says this narrative is absolutely deserving of being central because we are the ones who are suffering. Yeah, big questions. Um, but uh, I'll start with the, um, uh, let's say the positive stuff uh, with media outlets. I think um, I think many of us experienced uh, back in May, you know, during the you know, what's called like unity intifada and also like the, you know, the mass violence that was occurring from the river to the sea. Um, a big positive sign that a lot of us saw um, was that media outlets were reaching out. You know, as we're just mentioning now, reaching out to a lot more Palestinian voices. Um, and to levels which I think many of us found quite unprecedented. We were startled. And this is not just about Israel-Palestine. Like, I think, I think we owe a lot of credit, for example, to the, uh, to the Black Lives Movement uh, that the year before, like after the killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, which, uh, you know, has obviously been a long-going movement, but uh, I think it really helped to uh, shake up a lot of major media outlets to realize that they couldn't talk about Black communities without talking to, uh, you know, Black activists, Black residents, Black thinkers, and so on and so forth, for the community to speak for themselves. And it's not that they will always speak in one voice, but that we should reach out, you know, to the to these groups in order to gauge their opinions and their analysis, uh, and to and to trust them. And this feeds into that second question. So, you know, through that learning process, you know, we did see a lot of American outlets and British outlets and so on and so forth really reaching out to us for for analysis. Like you said, it wasn't just that they're going. Uh, to uh, you know, to a villager after their home was demolished. I mean, they would, but they would also get you know a Palestinine expert. You know, it's the Palestinians are not just the victims; they are agents of thought. They're agents to be able to articulate also 
um, you know, what is happening to them and what should be done about it. Um, insofar as what, where they're still coming short to say the least, I mean, a great, a great deal. Um, you know, that act, you know, that active, uh, the active outreach for Palestinians only happens when there's a massive, a massive violent episode, uh, especially when there's like a war in Gaza, especially when it's violence that's being occurred on the Israeli states, so especially like rockets being fired. Um, these are important right. moments to gauge the analysis. Yeah. And I, I would just add, I mean, we're, we still live in a world where you hear things like some, you know, something happened after a period of quiet and period of quiet is code for nothing happened that bothered Israel, not exactly. nothing was happening that actually had human costs. As long as those costs weren't Israeli, it's considered quiet, right? At the, I see that in the media all the time and I always just get very frustrated. Totally. And that's the complicity in the status quo that we were talking about earlier of like, it's, a, it's the status quo power dynamics. Um, and that's, and the media really reinforces that in many, many ways. Um, so one is about consistency of covering Israel-Palestine, even when there's not, you know, the quote unquote flashy moments. Um, and a second element, you know, th that ties into this is understanding, you know, what is violence as well. I mean, I could be making a, a huge list, but like when we want to understand violence, what is structural violence? What is, uh, violence of occupation? What is, uh, what is uh, colonial violence that goes beyond just who's sh uh, killed or who's shot or who's, who's bombed? Uh, what does it mean uh, to be living in a house waiting for demolition? That is a form of violence. Uh, you know, the cruelty uh, in the Nakab of being denied basic services, uh, of having your lands expropriated, and then being told that a tree that's being imported from Europe has more rights than you as a Bedouin citizen and to know that this is this is coming to you, like that is a form of violence. Uh, to be told that you are, you should accept that you're a second-class citizen, that you live in a Jewish state, and as a non-Jew, you will never be equal to us. That is a form of violence, um, and and it's and it goes across Israel Palestine. This kind of you know this inability to properly articulate that and grasp that. Major outlets need to really need to. Uh, hone this in because this is oftentimes the most dominant form of violence. It is the day-to-day -day that goes beyond May, that goes beyond even just this past week of you know real fatal violence. Um, so I, I would say this is one of the main recommendations I would have for them in that respect. Um, I think that that's so important, and I, I would encourage for folks who are listening or watching this, particularly if folks who have any connection with the media. Um, I think one thing that 972 has done really extraordinarily well is model what it looks like to do spot reporting, right? This is what's happening right now, but spot reporting that is grounded in an in-depth understanding and explanation. It doesn't take 5,000 words, but it takes knowledge and it takes a lot of work. And I really think that, you know, the, the kind of reporting you do is, is it models what that looks like. If you're going to do this reporting, it can be done well. And, and you're showing what that looks like. Yeah. I mean, I really appreciate the kind words and I, you know, I give huge credit to my colleagues and all our reporters and the writers, of course. Um, and, but yeah, but this is an important question, like something that we're always thinking about, you know, behind the, you know, the quote unquote news desk, our laptops basically is, you know, the first question we often have is, okay, so what, what story do we want to, what story is not being told or not being told often enough? And also who, who are we giving the microphone to? Who gets to speak? And, you know, you have major outlets like, like New York Times, for example, that's very intent on getting a gazillion Israeli officials to balance out um you know the quote of a palestinian or on the story here like this idea of balancing means that you're giving we, we call it both exactly. sides of them as a, as almost like a philosophy it's not possible to tell a story without 
bringing in someone to say, who's got a very specific perspective to not challenge the facts, but to just challenge the, to dismiss the overarching story itself, right? That's both sides. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and this is something that we want to change. You know, this old idea of, uh, of objective journalism really needs to be challenged. It's not that you can't tell the truth. Obviously, it's about telling facts, but it's also understanding that there are power dynamics to media too. There are power dynamics to reporting and there are entire groups and societies of people who weren't given the microphone. And that if, and that's, uh, there's some things that you can't put on an equal footing. Uh, I can't put like Gilad Erdan, you know, the Israeli ambassador to the UN, uh, and allow him to speak about Israel Palestine, saying that everything is fine and that it's it's the Israelis who are being, you know, it's the Israeli state that is being under attack under by the Palestinians. When you have someone on the ground who's experiencing settler violence on a daily basis, the army is beating up his family, uh, they're confiscating his property, threatening to demolish his home, and somehow Gilad Erdan has more right to speak about what is happening in Israel Palestine than this individual who's experiencing the worst form of brutality under this regime. And, and, and so, for, for folks who are listening, Amjad is bringing this up as a, Amjad, you're bringing this up as, a, as an example, because this is exactly what happened yesterday, where Ambassador mm-hmm. Adan at the UN held up a big rock, which looks remarkably like a piece of rubble from the destruction of a house, and basically spoke about the unending campaign against Israel by Palestinians, while all of the things we've been talking about have been happening every day, as if none of this is happening, as if in this power dynamic, Israel is the weaker party desperately trying to survive against these terrible Palestinians who are whose violence against Israel includes things like trying to stay in their homes. Exactly, exactly. Um, that's exactly what was on my mind. And, and, and so, yeah, and I mean, all this to say in the end that, you know, with that shifting of power dynamics, is, you know, comes back to this question about the Palestinian voices and about who are you bringing on? Um, you know, for a very long time, um, you know, Israel-Palestine was always talked about by non-Palestinians. Uh, and that even, for example, when we talk about Palestinian history, the tendency is to go to, to example, for Israel, to Israeli historians. When we want to cite, um, you know, what are the statistics about in the West Bank? We're going to Israeli organizations, uh, human rights groups. And they're all amazing. I'm, they really do incredible work and they're absolutely vital. Um, but sometimes, you know, I'll even ask like reporters sometimes, okay, I've noticed you cited only Israeli organizations to talk about what Palestinians are experiencing. What about Palestinian organizations that are doing similar work? It is not, you know, it's not about saying one, uh, either or, you know, but it's about trying to balance out, I mean, balance out in a different way, you know, to re-establish a different kind of dynamic to say that Palestinian voices are trustworthy. Palestinian organizations are also trustworthy, um, that we can also do professional work and it doesn't have to be said by someone who's a bit more uh, neutral and objective in order to prove it. And this is, again, this is with all, you know, love and thanks to people who are Israelis, who are internationals, who are doing this kind of work. Uh, but it's, again, like, how do we ensure that there is a genuine equity uh, in, in, who, in who gets to be trusted when we talk about it uh, in the media and in reporting, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking, as you say, you know, objective. I, the, the, the problem is, I mean, I, we've all lived this with this for years, that some voices are considered objective, even if they equally have a stake in the game as where Palestinians are always considered not objective, what is striking and looking at, again, the headlines this week about the massacre in, in what is now a Tel Aviv beach, or we, we, we've had a, a whole flood of headlines because people are now going into archives, you know, Akivot and others doing this work, going into archives, basically now getting Israeli sources proving that what Palestinians have been saying for decades was true. And for decades, Palestinians were dismissed as anti-Semitic and anti-Israel and untrustworthy for saying the things that are now being proven by Israeli archives. 
um, one has to wonder whether that process of, okay, we're going to begin an acculturation to these actually being seen as facts and not as Palestinian narrative can result in people being more trusting of Palestinians being allowed to actually be seen as um, people who deliver facts and a historical perspective that is grounded in facts. Um, that remains to be seen, but um, I think there's reason to at least be a little bit hopeful. Um, and I always like to leave on a, on a, on a, well, I don't, that's not true. It's nice to leave on a note of hope and I'm, I'm happy we can. Um, Amjad, thank you so, so much. Do you have anything last thing you want to add here? No, I mean, thank you, Lara, always. And really huge thanks to FMEP and the incredible work you guys are doing. And also, you know, on this very topic of like also bringing a lot of Palestinian voices uh, and arguments. And so we, you know, we appreciate, Anjad, we appreciate like uh, everything you guys are doing. Um, so we will, we will continue to do it and we'll continue to follow and, and try to get as many people as possible to, uh, to follow your great work. We'll have links to 972 and some key articles uh, that will accompany this podcast and video. Um, with that, I want to thank you, Amjad Araki from 972 for joining me today. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us for another episode of Occupied Thoughts. Make sure you check out the FMEP website, www.fmep.org for resources related to this podcast. There will also be the video, of course. And make sure you uh, subscribe. You can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify so you don't miss any of this fantastic content. Um, and with that, I'm Laura Friedman signing off. Until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts.